got into syndication, I'm like, this is really cool. Um, you know, I get to help investors kind of do the same thing where they can invest capital and get some passive cash flow and offset some taxes. So, you know, they're not exchanging as much of their time for money as well. How about for you, Warren? Um, yeah, I, I couldn't have really said it better. Um, totally the same motivation. I mean, it's about building financial freedom, but really ultimately it's about time freedom. Time's the only resource that's actually scarce. We've all got a limited amount of time and it's about creating that freedom to spend time with family and however else you know, we want to spend it. You're listening to the Rich State of Mind Show, the podcast made to make you the total package in the entrepreneurial world and give you what we call a rich state of mind. If you are here looking to learn about real estate investing, marketing, elevating your business, and developing your mindset to get to the next level, then you are at the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join our community on richstateofmind.com. Now, here's your host, Anthony Ritchie. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rich State of Mind podcast, where I'm talking to Ryan Webster and Warren Dresner. Uh, start off with Ryan, and he's a award-winning home builder, experienced real estate professional and entrepreneur. He's had over a decade of experience owning and operating in the Midwest based construction and development company. And for Warren, he's had over 20 years experience in finance, insurance, and real estate in the U.S., U.K., and Australia, and uh, has experience investing in both single-family and multifamily apartments. So pretty much we're talking about Equity Yield Group, which is the uh, equity group that Warren and Ryan both run. Uh, they've been doing great with investing in multifamily um, asset class. It's the A and B asset class, which we've never really talked about. I've always talked about probably C and D and adding value with the people that we've uh, interviewed. Uh, but Ryan and Warren have found uh, being able to, to provide value add to A and B class and, and find the underwriting that makes sense, you know, cash flow wise. So I think this would be a great episode and uh, I think it's another opportunity to learn. So as always, thank you for listening and please enjoy. Hey, Warren. Hey, Ryan. Thank you so much for being on the Rich State Man podcast. Like I said earlier, you guys are the first time in the episode where I'm interviewing two people at the same time. So whoever would like to go first on giving us a little bit of your background and what you do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'll jump in. I you know, appreciate you having us. Uh, so I'm a real estate professional and entrepreneur, uh, one of the founders of Equity Yield Group. Um, prior to getting into multifamily real estate, I owned and operated a construction development company for a little over 10 years. Um, and then made the, the transition from build and sell to uh, buy and hold investments. Awesome. And hey, I'm Warren. Thanks for having us on. Um, so my background's in insurance and finance. Um, I'm from Australia originally, been in the US just over three, three and a half years now. Um, but I've got a long corporate background, um, worked for big companies, um, come from that professional kind of environment. I, I've always invested in real estate on the side, but about three years ago, I started to get more involved in multifamily. Started out as an LP, as a limited partner in other people's deals. And then over time, met Ryan and we got together, formed Equity Yield Group and, and started to acquire properties, multifamily properties actively. Awesome. And uh, so if y'all could tell us a little bit about what got you into doing uh, this type of asset class, why not stick with you know the single family homes, which you started off with, Warren, or you as construction, you know, doing that side. I'm just with residential properties and multifamilies, uh, Ryan. Yeah, uh, a little bit of both. 
little bit of both. Uh, so what made you guys want to shift to this? Uh, I can, I guess I can start. So I got into single family homes in the beginning because it was all I knew. I mean, when you think about investing in real estate, that's what most people understand that means. Um, and the motivation for getting into real estate was, for me, it was tax savings and also a bit of cash flow and passive income. What I found over time is that it's actually a lot of work to manage properties, single family homes. And if you acquire two or three, that work accumulates. So the benefit of getting into multifamily when I discovered that multifamily as an asset class was really just the ability to scale um, and the ability to, to create a business that's, that's a bit more professional, allows you to scale and bring other people on board in the team. Um, that's, that's really the motivation of like where I started, why I started that way and, and where we are today. Yeah. And for me, it was really about a, a shift, um, you know, away from constantly doing work and selling and generating capital gains and, and taxes uh, to really more investing in real estate and, and doing long-term rentals and generating cash flow and, and taking advantage of, of the tax benefits that come along with real estate. Um, and, you know, having the experience of, of building and operating a business, you know, I understand how important uh, scale was. Um, so, I, you know, I, I looked at the single family model and in building out a, a portfolio of small multi in the beginning and, and realized that that wasn't going to scale quickly. and It was going to be a lot of work um, and decided that jump into the multi space and then skip over that. Uh, completely understandable. And I'm, uh, Warren, you mentioned about professional Yes, that is the key difference I've noticed between, let's say, if I hired a property management team for my single family or even my small residential multifamily homes versus the property management companies that you deal with when it comes to syndications, completely different and uh, a better experience, I would say. Uh, so I, I definitely agree with you on that. That's about the property management, but also just all elements. So if we talk about the debt that's available. The, the quality of the debt that we can get on a large multifamily asset is much better than if you go out and try to buy a bunch of single family. The debt's non-recourse, often the interest rate is, is lower. So it's kind of like a perverse thing with these bigger assets, but the bigger the asset, the lower the risk, um, and you actually get better debt terms. You get more professional management. So if, the way we look at things, it's, you know, we're, we're striving to get a return, but it's also about the risk that you're taking on. And we just feel that these multifamily assets are lower risk investments. I love, I love that. And I, I, I would think that whoever has listened to what you just said feels a little bit better now about getting that high, that high end deal. Uh, and so, yeah, speaking of deals, let's talk about you guys' first deal, $26 million acquisition, which is amazing. Uh, kind of walk us through uh, the process of finding that deal. Um, you know, how long it took you to accumulate, you know, everything for your down payment and other fees. And then how's it doing right now? Uh, maybe I'll start and then you can jump in, Ryan. Yeah. Um, so this deal was 148 units in Sarasota, Florida. Um, it does, it does sound like a, a big deal as a first one. Um, but in reality, we were probably working for about a year or more trying to find a deal. So we underwrote, I don't know, 150, 180 deals before we found this one. Um, through that time period, we, we found deals that worked on paper, but we didn't win them. So like really the process is you've got to underwrite a lot of deals, find something that works. You've got to put a lot of offers out there and then you're not going to win every deal that you put an offer out on. So 
we were working for a long period for at least 12 months looking for for something um, part of Ryan and my strategy is has always been to to look at newer assets um, we just feel again going back to risk return we feel that it's a lower risk proposition buying something that's new that doesn't have a lot of deferred maintenance that tends to have a better demographic living there so we were naturally targeting these newer assets, which just happened to be more expensive. So we knew that when we went out there trying to find our first deal, we weren't looking at a deal that was going to cost five or $10 million. We were always targeting something that was going to cost 20 or $30 million. So we didn't get that sticker shock. We weren't nervous necessarily about the purchase price because we were very intentional at the beginning that this is the type of asset we want to buy and this is the likely price range. So, um, yeah, it was a long process, but uh, fortunately we won the deal and it's, it's been performing great. I guess, Ryan, you can talk about you know, how it's performed over the last couple of years. Yeah, um, you know, we've, part of our thesis has really been buy, buy the market first. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you're investing in real estate, but it's a business. Um, and the fundamentals of the market are going to drive the growth of that business. So we, uh, in Sarasota, Florida, we bought into a very, very strong market, and that's carried a, a lot of growth. Um, you know, we've seen rent growth in excess of, of 30% across the market as a whole. Um, and, you know, just 12 months after acquiring that property, we've refinanced it. Um, oh. And we returned um, a little over $5.5 in, uh, in capital to investors uh, within a 12-month period. And, you know, given a, it's a class A asset, typically you're looking at lower cash on cash returns exactly, um, yeah. because of the, the risk profile, the deal's lower risk. Um, but, you know, given the asset that we selected in the, the plan we executed, um, you know, we're looking at now post refinance, moving to 10 to 12% cash on cash for our investors within a 12 month period. Um, and really what drove that is uh, it is a value add deal, even though it's 2016 build, um, it's class A. Um, a lot of people don't realize there is value-add opportunity in some of these newer properties. Um, and the component on this property was we had, you know, great exteriors, nice amenities package, um, but the interiors were really cheap, just builder-grade finishes, and the property was lagging the market because of that. So we were able to come in um, and put in about seven grand a unit, uh, mainly focused on renovating the kitchens, putting in granite countertops, tile backsplash, and uh, new cabinet doors and uh, see quite a bit of premium. And we're anywhere, depending on the unit type, from three to $450 uh, rent bumps on these renovated units. So this is new because most of the people that I talk to when they want to do value add, they're looking at a C, maybe B minus area. And that's how they're able to guarantee a good uh, you know, cash on a cash return. You're talking about 12% on a A grade spot, which I think is phenomenal. And you found value add. Now, one of the questions I'm, I'm wondering, because you guys sound very confident in, y'all, in how y'all do things. Uh, we kind of had like a like a, a once in a generation situation between 2020 and now where rent was going up really, really steadily. And so do you feel like there is room to get these A and B class grade areas and still get that 12 percent you're looking for and still have the value add that you're looking for? Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to say as a whole, everything is, is deal by deal um, mm-hmm. in real estate. I think there's definitely opportunities out there. And uh, the thing that 
gets overlooked in you know what we call a minus properties um so a little older a class property is well located and that's where there is this value add potential for this first generation interior renovation without the expense of covering the deferred maintenance and having to put you know new amenities into the property so you get a good return on cost on renovation but the bigger piece is the demographics um so we're working with a different tenant profile on these properties um, so we don't have bad debt problems. We don't have delinquency problems. Um, and we have a higher affordability ceiling. Um, so incomes are higher for these properties and for the areas surrounding these properties, which enables rents to be higher. Um, where if you go into you know, your traditional C-class property, and we saw this at the onset of COVID, um, lots of C-class properties got crushed with delinquency as, as soon as unemployment set in. Um, you know, that demographic does not have a lot of savings. Um, they do not have the ability to, to move into different jobs um, where the demographics surrounding these A properties, A minus properties, you're not hitting that income ceiling as rents rise. Yeah, more than likely their jobs are probably still intact or like you said, have savings. Yep. I think you're, you're totally right. That it was a once in a generational thing. COVID was very strange and the rent growth that we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months has been crazy. It can't continue like that. I mean, there's, there's an affordability issue. So we're expecting renters to be paying 30% more just in a 12 month period. Surely the next 12 months, it's got to kind of flatten out. But like Ryan mentioned before, our approach is first we pick the market. We want to find a market where there's higher demand than there is supply. And as long as we're in that kind of environment, where there is in-migration or significant growth, um, we're confident that we can follow our business plan. We might not get 30%. We probably won't get 30% rent growth again. <laughs> we're confident we're going to get strong growth because it's all about supply and demand. Well, yeah, you said it earlier. You said, uh, or Ryan said about buying the market, right? If you see jobs are coming in, you notice what the uh, average income is. You know, are more people moving than, than you know, moving out than moving in, uh, then you are set up for success. Uh, you actually have, I'm glad that we're speaking on this. And, and this is why I actually, I picked it. I wanted to pick you guys because nobody talks about buying A and B. Actually, a lot of people, it's like cash flow, cash flow, right? A little bit of appreciation, which um, for those of us that have bought properties before 2019, we're like, <laughs> we're like, you know, loving it. Uh, but it, it's most of the time it's like cash flow. And they're like, hey, if you don't, if you don't want your cash flow to be, you know, very small, then don't get an A, don't get a B. There's no value add. It's already great. Uh, but you were able, I think that's, the, I think that is the superpower, right? Underwriting, great, being able to be a, pro, pro, a project manager, right? And manage all the things that are happening. But I think the, the real superpower is finding where you can improve something uh, where people are not looking. Because uh, a lot of people I don't think are looking in that direction. Because they think it's oh that place is it's good to go, um, you know yeah. I, I don't have to fully renovate the spot so it's probably it's good to go, and I'm not even gonna look at it. it's twenty six million right I'm not I'm worth the five ten million, um so so with that with you know with your LPs what are you, what are your minimums and your maximums with people are contributing for those that might be interested in, in work with you guys in the future. Yeah, it's, it's deal by deal. Uh, minimums are anywhere from 50 to 100K. Um, maximum is, is typically subject to the lender. Um, usually once you get above a million dollar contribution, the lender has to start doing some, some due diligence on that particular LP. Understandable. 
And I mean, sheesh, they could buy their own spot if they want it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you closed in 2021, you closed on $130 million worth of multifamilies. How many, how many deals was that? We have four in uh, 2021. So do you feel like, so I remember you said your first deal took about a year, right? And so a, as you've been, uh, I'm assuming just gaining relationships, now you have deals coming your way. Yeah. I mean, for us, uh, the deal flow is always there because the product type that that we buy is uh, you know mostly owned by institutions and they're all marketed deals. The institutions don't want to forgo the marketing process. They they want to drive bidding and and maximize return. So unfortunately, there's not a huge opportunity to to sneak these deals off market. Um, but you know the benefit is is they are institutional quality properties. We will sell back to you know institutional buyers when we're ready to to dispo these. Um, so the deal flow is always there. It was winning them that that's the challenge because you're competing against other institutions that are bidding on these deals. And, and what puts you above somebody else? Like if you know, both we're both putting 15 million down, why would somebody pick you guys over over the other competitor? Some of the advantage that you can have as a syndicator, you know, going up against the big institutions is is hard money deposits. Um, mind you, you have to have a lot of confidence in your deal and do a fair amount of due diligence before even making an offer to know that, you know, your numbers are tight. Yeah. You're not making any unreasonable assumptions. Um, but a lot of the institutions using funds can't place hard money out of those funds. Um, so that does give you a leg up and we sneak into a space where, you know, the deals are a little bit too small for the massive institutions. Um, so we're competing in some of these family offices and midsize institutions, which is a little less competitive than, you know, your 600 unit, massive deals yeah over time i think it does get easier so the first one was very difficult to be taken seriously and i think we just mm. had like a lot of offers show that we were as serious as we could show and build the relationship with the brokers but once we got that first deal we started to get a reputation we were in that market we do our very best to be a good buyer so we just we try and make sure we're easy to work with throughout the whole closing process and we've done that on every deal um, to try and build that reputation for being easy to work with. And so as we won more and more deals, we started to get a reputation for being able to close, for being good to work with, and for knowing the market. So we've, we've tended to buy a lot of deals in the same part of Florida, and now we're a known buyer in that market. And, and that, again, makes it easier as well. Um, yeah. Thank you. I can see that. When it comes to your underwriting process, um, how do you how do you stress test the deal? How do you how do you look and validate you know some of the assumptions that you're processing to ensure that this is going to be a good deal? Yeah, I think the best way to look at it is is it's a range. Are you generating returns in an acceptable range? Um, and and that range can be generated. Well, what if I vary my rent growth? You know, up and down five percent. What if what if I drop you know my reversion cap rate up and down? What does that do? And you go through the, the metrics of the deal where you're making assumptions. Um, you know, you make the best educated guess you can, but looking in the crystal ball, you, you don't know the exact market that you're, you're going to sell into. Um, so you do have to make some assumptions and then, you know, plus or minus, what is the return generated by that deal look like? And is it an acceptable range? Uh, I love that um, because I do believe in there being a range uh, as well, you know, Easy math, five to 10. Okay, cool. Worst case scenario, if we can get in the middle seven uh, to make sure that we're in a, in a comfortable space. 
I, as, I, as you've been talking, I've been thinking like, you know what, I, I think because I like to use these episodes for people an opportunity to be LPs to get started. I've known some people, they just go straight to being a, a, a GP, but uh, to, I think a lot of people would be comfortable with this because like you said earlier, these are people that are uh, have jobs that are not going to be lost. So they have better financial stability. And that's an investment that I would like to get into because as by the time this episode comes out, I'm maybe we're, I don't know if y'all believe in it, but maybe the recession may come, right? A lot of people believe that that's going to come. And will A and B be affected like C and B will? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, and so I think you guys, uh, the way you, you have your uh, system set in place is, a, you know, like I, like I said earlier before we started recording, I like to say recession proof, but I like to say pretty, uh, you know, you still got some, you got some bulletproof chest plates, right? To, to take a lot of bullets in case something that you cannot control happens, external issues. Absolutely. And, I, and, and I love that. And that's really what we look at is, you know, we, there'll be ups and downs in the economy. There always will be, we, we look at, you know, back to stress testing, look at the market and stress test the market. How will it perform in an economic downturn? And that's going to dictate how your property and your business is going to perform. Um, Cause very rarely does a specific property outperform, you know, the whole market in a recession. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Like what is it? They, like they, they're probably like they got a casino in there. Or something? Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> um, so that that's really you know what a lot of our focus on is is risk adjusted returns. You know, we're we're looking to generate the best return we can without taking you know excessive risks. So we're investing in in strong and stable markets, in quality assets, um, and in putting you know a strong quality team behind them to operate the thing. Yeah, which was going to be my next question. You know, how do you put your team together? What are you looking for? What, what attributes are you looking for for each of them to have to make sure you um, are having a great due diligence process? And then after that, a post uh, management process after you've purchased the property. Yeah. Um, you know, we lean pretty heavily on our third party property management. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time interviewing property managers before we found this one and started working with them. Um, you know, one of the things I do like about them is they, they used to be owners. Uh, so post 2008, they started a fund, went out and bought about a billion dollars worth of real estate. As that portfolio grew, uh, they decided to bring management in-house and form their own property management firm. Um, they've since sold most of that portfolio and have now transitioned into the third-party management. Um, but having that experience and perspective as an owner really allows them to, to work with us well and, and deliver results because they have a better sense of what we're looking for as opposed to, you know, other third party firms that, uh, you know, haven't really owned real estate and haven't had to, you know, generate results for their investors. That, that makes complete sense. Uh, you, I, you made me think, because I'm in, like I said, I'm in the military, you made me think about the, some of the civilians that work with us. We work better with the ones that used to be in the military. Yeah. <laughs> they understand our gripes and pain, you know, pains and stuff like that. So it's, it, it does make it a whole lot easier. And I can see how that could work with for this situation as well. How many uh, GPs do you usually have for a deal? It, it depends. I mean, it could be from for a smaller deal, it might be three or four, but for a larger deal, you know, it might be 10 or, or in excess of 10. There are, there are lots of roles that are required to put some of these big deals together. So like as, as you probably are aware and as the listeners are probably aware, you need some money. You need some earnest money or risk capital. So often we'll bring that ourselves, but sometimes we might need to partner with someone else because we're talking about a million dollars earnest money on a really big deal. 
Um, we, we need people to help us get a big loan. So we might need net worth requirements or someone with a lot of liquidity. We tend to have experience so we can cover that aspect with the lender. Um, from an asset management side, we can cover the asset management. We've got business experience, which is really crucial for operating these properties. And we've got real estate and construction experience from Ryan's background, which is really important when managing these properties. Um, and then we need to raise capital. And so we've got the ability to raise capital, but often we need, we need help. And so we like to partner with other groups who can also help to raise capital. So depending on the size of the deal, you know, there are a number of different roles that need to be played and we can wear a couple of hats, but often it's more efficient to bring other people into the deal to wear some of those hats as well. And you'll be, and you'd rather split the proceeds than fail trying to wear all the hats. Absolutely. And yeah. I've always had the mentality that I'd rather have a small slice of a watermelon than own a couple of grapes. So. <laughs> okay. I like that. We are. Uh, we just want to acquire lots of these properties and manage them well. So we don't want to take on too much of a burden ourselves. We'd rather partner with people who can bring expertise and other skills and together we can be better and do more. And, and what would you consider, um, you know, when there's somebody that wants to be a GP, kind of coach them or kind of break down, what's the best way to kind of work with everybody to make sure we're on the same page? Because everybody comes with their own agenda as far as, hey, what do they want out of this? Who's kind of like the ringleader to like to kind of corral like, hey, we got to make sure we're on the same page. Everybody, you know, do you do what you're supposed to do? You do what you're supposed to do. Or is, is everybody governing themselves or is there somebody kind of managing that process? I, I think with our deals, we're managing the process. Um, yeah. We're the sponsor and we understand what's required and, and where the gaps in expertise or skills or resources are. So we're very specific and intentional about it. We'll we'll say we need to find two or three people to play this role mm -hmm. and we'll go out and find those people and make it very clear to them that this is the role that we're looking for them to play. Um, something that, that we try and focus on as a group is transparency. We love to be, we try and be as transparent as possible and communicate with the whole team as much as possible because we know how frustrating it can be when you, you're in the dark, you know, you're part of the team, but you don't actually know what's going on. So we try and be open and transparent with everyone, but we also try and be very clear that these are the roles and this is what we need each team member to, to do as part of the group. You mentioned earlier, as far as uh, sometimes you have people on your team to meet uh, certain um, network requirements and you need capital. Uh, what is the timeline like as far as when you find a deal that you like, you put in an offer, how long do you have to get accumulate that money from everybody? Um, it's probably a good one for you, Ryan. But uh, it, it all depends on the lender requirements. I think um, typically we have 60 days to close these deals. Okay. We get extensions from the seller. Um, we, we prefer not to use them because, you know, that'll frustrate the seller. And like I said before, we try and be easy to work with. So we're trying to wrap everything up in 60 days. Um, the lender can take, you know, a, they could take 60 days or more sometimes to, to close these deals. But as soon as we get an offer accepted, we're on a timeline and, and we try and put that team together as quickly as possible so that awesome. the can be smooth. 60 days doesn't seem like long to me sometimes. It seems like it's a, it's a, like, it goes, yeah. yeah, it goes by quick. For, for the amount of things that have to take place in that 60 days, it, it goes by very, very quick. Um, you know, especially you're, you're negotiating the, the loan agreement with the lender, you're, you're lining up uh, in insurance, you're raising capital, putting the PPM together, getting all the, the legal docs together. And then, you know, getting the property management team 
teed up for the transition of the property and the takeover. Yeah. And, and I guess as part of that 60 days, the first part we're doing, we're finishing our due diligence. So often we'll have 21 or 30 days due diligence where we actually get into the books and go and inspect the property unit by unit. We can't afford to wait until the end of the due diligence process before we start to get serious. We've got to start to get serious and at the same time finish the due diligence process, knowing that it's very, very likely that we're going to close on this deal. That's exciting. It's just that whole process, walking through, checking everything, seeing some things, okay, I would change that. Uh, and then just, I guess, seeing everything kind of work like a well-doing machine as well, even though 60 days seems like a crunch. Which I know to some people, they're like, 60 days, that's forever. I, I've noticed not when it comes to trying to close on properties. Is not. No, not, not when you're closing big, big commercial properties. Yeah. There's just so many different parties involved. And, you know, when you get get legal involved from, you know, three different sources. You got the seller's counsel, your counsel, lender's counsel. Um, you know, if you're working with equity partners, you got their counsel and, and trying to get all the, the lawyers to work together uh, in the same direction at the same time is, is challenging in of itself. Yeah. And then the uh, operation agreements, I'm pretty sure that you have those with the GPs, the other GPs. Yeah. With the GPs and the, the LPs. Um, you have ones with them as well. Yep. Yeah, and see, like I said, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of pro, it's a lot of processing. I didn't, I didn't mention earlier. I didn't ask earlier because you said Florida and then it's the Carolinas and Texas. Texas. Yep. Correct. So, what is it? Um, do those areas have anything in common as to why you've picked those three, or they uh, each have something unique that really, uh, you know, made you guys want to go in those areas? And then I'll go into my second question after that. Yeah, the, the biggest driver and, and commonality between those areas is really uh, net inbound migration. There, there's huge population growth there um, as people are moving to those areas. And, and a lot of this was precipitated by COVID when we had this, okay, everybody's going to start working from home and I'm no longer chained to a desk. And there were a lot of people, you know, who are up north, uh, like me, uh, you know, in February, it's about negative 15 here. And you started asking yourself the question, do I really want to live here? Um, and a lot of people made the jump and said, no, I'm going down South. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go live in paradise. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I didn't. I know a lot of people moving to Charlotte, North Carolina, but I didn't know even South Carolina people are moving to as well. Uh, so that's it. I know a lot of people want to move to Florida, definitely Texas. Uh, I see the Texas jokes about people moving from California to Texas, and they're like, "Hey, don't change, don't change what Texas is," you know. <laughs> uh, all the Californians uh, yeah, coming over. The other piece about this, you know, we, we saw, you know, huge rent growth, which, you know, I, I agree is, is not sustainable in the future. Rent growth can only go as far as, as incomes can support. Um, but affordability, uh, you know, it, it's all relative. We have a lot of people moving down from New York uh, to Florida and, and they're like, wow, your rents are really cheap here. Mm -hmm. Like, well, we've seen crazy growth here. What do you mean cheap? Oh, I came from, you know, Manhattan. I was paying 6,000 a month for a studio. Yeah. The average rent is four thousand up there. Yeah, so I'll pay nine fifty in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's you know the other thing that comes with these migration patterns is this perspective on what is affordable. And what I'm also seeing too is that uh, people are you know working remotely. So I make New York money, but I live in Florida because yeah. the company I work for is based out of New York. I'm starting to see that and hear that more often. There's been a migration to Idaho. Um, and people have been uh, making California money still, but they live in Idaho. Um, so 
I think that's going to change things, I think, because that's the biggest thing. People move, but they get paid more because they get, they move to that metropolitan area. What if I'm making California money, but I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico? I'm a king. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing is, uh, you know, if, if you can live in a you know, relatively affordable place and, and make your money at, uh, somewhere else, um, you know, you, you, you're into the end of the day, your budget goes farther. I wonder if business is going to catch up to that and be like, hey, you live in this area, so we're going to pay based off that, that zip code or area. I don't know. That'll be interesting to see. Because that wouldn't that really kind of make things, do you think that would shift the market up a bit into how you dictate where you buy? Um, again, I think uh, the interesting thing about real estate is, is the supply side is always going to lag because it takes so long to build housing. So anytime you have a spike in, in the demand where you have, you know, population growth, um, that it's very easy and very fast to move. It's very slow to build commercial property, to build new homes. Um, so anytime there's an imbalance that the supply takes a long time to catch up and then that drives values and drives rents. That's the thing. Uh, money is one thing like incomes and what your cost of living is, but I think COVID kind of, made a lot of people wake up and realize that it's not all about the job. It's about lifestyle and family and quality of life. And so I think a lot of people are moving to Florida and the Carolinas for the quality of life. It's just an easier lifestyle than being in a big bustling New York city. So even if the incomes do come down because they're no longer in the city, in the big city, I think people are still going to want to live in these places because the weather's great and the quality of life is, is excellent. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that my wife and I both from from New York and I'll never go back. Exactly. You know, I'll never go back. It was, you know, 14 degrees during the winter. Uh, and we intend to uh, retire somewhere that is warm because I don't want to be old and cold. So uh, <laughs> so it's completely understandable. Where do you where do you see your business going, you know, between now, you know, you still got six months left in this year, 2022 and like the next five years, where do you want to take this? We want to scale. We want to grow the business. Um, you know, I, at the beginning, I, I talked about my background is in the corporate world where I'm used to dealing with professional companies like Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs. And when we got into the world of syndication, syndication is the opposite in many ways. It's real grassroots. You can just get a bunch of guys together and you can buy these big assets. I think we want to build something that's big and scalable and professional. So we really want to build a professional syndication company that um, can be compared to the likes of Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs and those, those big companies who play in the finance world. So we want to keep growing, keep acquiring properties, managing them well, and helping investors to, to make great returns. I was just seeing if y'all plan on buying a billion dollars worth of real estate and then selling half of it and then making your own property management team. <laughs> yeah. um, I would love to buy a billion dollars worth of real estate. I don't know if I want to run a property management company, though. It sounds like a lot of work for, for very little margin. Well, I, I think what I noticed when I was working with property managers is, and I hate this part about it, but it's like, if you sell your home while you're with us, we're going to get 6% of the, you know, profit. So I think they make, you know, they find different other ways to make money and, and charge fees. Um, you know, 6% of a million dollars, it's not bad makes up for the maybe the $30 in profit you're making per door. Absolutely. But yeah, we'd, we'd love to keep growing. Um, I think we both, you know, love this industry. It's a, 
It's a great industry because it, it works for the residents. We're improving the livelihood of the residents and their quality of life. We're helping investors to make money. And we feel like we're making a difference. So I'd like to keep doing this. Um, I don't know, Ryan feels the same. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, the biggest part of, of this is, you know, it's it's not a traditional investment and it allows investors to have access to, you know, uh, quality hard assets that are that are commercial and scalable. You can hire professional management um, and, you know, you're, you don't have the volatility of Wall Street. You don't have, you know, all all the fees that you have with, uh, you know, financial planners and financial managers. Yeah, this this is true. Uh, I did, you know, we mentioned earlier about the taxes, tax breaks too on that. And I think I always thought it was cool how the LPs get to still get the tax benefits um, of the, of the property as well. I think that's, I think that's always an awesome thing where they get to experience that side of it and not have to manage it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the few investments where you as a passive investor are, are actually a partner in the thing that you're investing in. And that's what allows you to take your pro rata of that uh, depreciation benefit. And so, yeah, man, I almost forgot too, because I remember I told you before we started recording, Ryan, I haven't done a podcast in a month. I always like to ask everybody this before at the end of the episode, uh, what is your rich state of mind? What's your big why? Why are you guys every day getting up and doing something like this? These are heavy lifts, right? Nobody just gets up and says, I'm just going to buy $26 million property. There's some passion, some effort put into it and uh, definitely some mental fortitude. Uh, so what is your, what is your big whys on this? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think it's, it started with, you know, uh, where a lot of people start is, is this exchange for, for time for money. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd built a pretty successful business, um, but I didn't have a lot of time at the end of the day. I'm like, well, I got to change this, this business model where, uh, you know, I can get some of my time back and, and still make uh, some decent money and support my family and have time to spend with them as well. Um, and then started looking at, you know, real estate as an investment um, as opposed to just, you know, a product. And then, you know, got into syndication. I'm like, this is really cool. Um, you know, I get to help investors kind of do the same thing where they can invest capital and get some passive cash flow and offset some taxes. So, you know, they're not exchanging as much of their time for money as well. How about you, Warren? Um, yeah, I, I couldn't have really said it better. Um, totally the same motivation. I mean, it's about building financial freedom, but really ultimately it's about time freedom. Time's the only resource that's actually scarce. We've all got a limited amount of time and it's about creating that freedom to spend time with family and however else, you know, we want to spend it. No, I completely agree. Um, I've had people that the, the couple of people that I've shared it with that I told I was getting out of the military and I'm, and it, well, by the time I get out, I'll be close to retirement, but I'm like, I'm done because the amount of money that I'll, I'll be getting from the military does not equate to the time that I get to spend with my family and the freedom and money I get to make doing other things. So I completely understand uh, that concept. You can't trade like it's That's the most valuable currency to me is time. Uh, I'm, I don't like after meetings, I'm like, hey, is everybody done? I don't dilly that. I just get up. I, I want to go back home with my family. Uh, I don't really like to. <laughs> I want to get back. Uh, so I appreciate y'all, y'all's time. I, I really I really want I can't wait for this episode to come out because I, I want people to be exposed to to start changing their thought process. And it's cool to invest in A and B projects uh, and there's still value add 
and not so much focus on C and D and trying to, you know, raise them from the dead to get a huge return on your investment. Right. I think, you know, the biggest thing that we've learned through experience, because we're investors ourselves, um, is to focus on risk adjusted returns. I don't think it gets talked about enough. I think a lot of people look at deals and say, wow, these guys are advertising a 20% return. Yeah. A great deal. But you need to focus on the risk. What's the downside? How realistic is that 20%? And what risks is the operator going to take on to try and generate that? So we very much focus on risk and return. And we're trying to generate great risk adjusted returns. And with that mindset, that's how we landed on this strategy of going for those A minus type deals in strong markets, because we just feel like it's a, a better proposition, a safer investment um, that still generates great returns. I actually think you summed it up pretty perfectly. Uh, actually, <laughs> where, can, uh, where can people find you guys? Uh, the, the best way is probably our website. It's equityyieldgroup.com. Uh, so you can jump on there, see what we're up to, sign up for our investor list or our monthly newsletters. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate your time. Uh, and I really want people to, to uh, whenever your next deal is, I want people to join you and experience uh, this different type of, I'm going to call this an asset class of the asset class. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sticking with us from the start of the episode. Please share our show with friends and family, visit our YouTube channel, and view more of our content on richstateofmind.com. See you next week on the Rich State of Mind show.